Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Man from Uncle by Michael Avalone. Volume 3, Chapter 7, The Badly Dressed Corpse. What are you thinking about, Napoleon? The same thing you must be. The corpse? Yeah. Any other time I would be thinking of you, but... Stu's corpse was enough to throw me into a tailspin. That fantastically quick decomposition and the clothes, they have to mean something. He isn't dressed that way because he was eccentric. They were sitting quietly in the parlor of Herr Mueller's home, enjoying the solitude of each other's company and a blissful cigarette. The smoke filled the air with lazy spirals of unbroken perfection until they collided with the beam ceiling. Like most rural German homes, the Burgermeister's house was mostly wooden. Solo had had a frantic two hours upon their return from Stuart Frome's place. There had been the matter of the coffin, a cheap pine box, shaped nearly like a mummy case. With the mortician's help and Jerry Terry's aid, they had placed Stuart Frome's in the coffin. Finally, they had secured enough ice to defer further decomposition for a few more hours. Solo had found some plastic bags in Frome's workshop, which served. He had nothing more to do with the corpse other than to examine the reverse clothes, but there was nothing immediately apparent. No message, no scraps of paper, no clues. Yet he knew for a fact that back at the uncle laboratory, something would be uncovered. Perhaps Stuart had treated his clothes with fluorescent materials or chemicals which would turn up under black light. It couldn't end like this. Thrush hadn't dressed him that way to be found by his friends. They weren't in the business of leaving clues. No, the clothes had been Stuart's idea. But why? Napoleon Solo didn't know. All he experienced now was a vast weariness of brain, limb, and soul. He blinked across the room at Jerry Terry. She was smiling at him. If you want to talk, I'll listen. We should both be tucked in our beds, but you look like a man who can't sleep. Too much thinking to do. Something like that, he admitted. Any ideas? He puffed on the cigarette. A few kind of things you have to drum up when you're in the dark. I'm thinking about Stuart Frome's. What kind of a man he was. Whatever I can remember about him. It's screwy, but I suddenly realize a lot of water has gone over the dam, and we didn't have much of a chance to get friendlier. What was he like? He was brilliant. He won a medal in Korea, majored in chemistry at Cornell, came out at the head of his class. He'd been with Uncle for nearly ten years. He was a bachelor, although he was almost hooked by a Hollywood actress once. That was his broken-hearted period. He liked the Yankees. He was a good golfer, and... Solo sat up, eyes narrowing. And he was an inveterate reader of mystery novels. Everything and anything. The fact is, we used to kid him about it. Have you thought of something? Maybe. Something constructive. It was odd, but the spurring softness of her voice filtered across the quiet room. It helped him immensely. She was a sounding board for any and all ideas he might come up with. 
even the crazy ones. Maybe, but I'll have to sleep on it. She laughed lightly. That's a good one. Sleep? Sleep where? The Burgermeister doesn't have any extra beds. I imagine these chairs are it for the rest of the night. He looked toward the windows. A dull globe approaching dawn made the squared area ghostly. German hospitality still has a Nazi flavor in some areas, I guess. Just as well, you never know when you're shaking hands with a man who stood by those ovens. Creepy sensation. This chair will do me fine. Napoleon? Still here. She had left her chair to glide softly across the room. She was before him in an instant. A beautiful pixie with coppery hair and a hauntingly lovely face. The crude lamps of the parlor made her face glow like some bronze goddess. She put her hands to his cheeks, bent, and kissed him swiftly on the lips. There, we're even now, she whispered. New breed, huh? Her eyes narrowed. Just what does that mean? Well, you see what you want and you take it. I'm all for new breeds. Can't tell. A little judicious mating and future generations may not turn out half bad. She was starting to get angry at this color mounted in her cheeks. His bantering manner caused her to push away, averting her face. Solo laughed and reached out and pulled her back. He held her tightly so that her body was crushed against his own in the narrow confines of the chair. She squirmed, trying to get away from him, but he held her easily, almost as though she were a child. He turned her around to face him and said, I really didn't mean that as a compliment, you know. If it didn't sound completely serious, that's only because of a peculiar quirk of mine. Too many people I like have ended up dead, so I try not to take important things seriously anymore. You're just a stinker, she murmured, all the fight gone out of her. Takes one to know one, doesn't it, Miss Terry? The chair was not the best place in the world to discover suddenly that they liked each other very much. But they managed. The utter stillness of the morning was staggering in its quietude. For a metropolitan man used to the throb and roar of big cities and thundering sidewalks, it proved a genuine soporific. Napoleon Solo had to be awakened. He opened his eyes to see Jerry Terry's lovely smile inches from his eye. We have bacon and eggs, she said happily. Come on, coffee's on the boil, and the good Mueller's, both him and her, are off to City Hall to see about arrangements for getting us out of here. He sat up, rubbing his eyes and running his fingers through his sleep-must hair. Abruptly, the girl said, Is Napoleon your real name? He pretended to be hurt. What, don't you like it? I love it. I simply noticed that you have that Bonaparte hairdo, that little dark forelock that dangles on your forehead. I'll cut it off, he promised. You do, and I'll never talk to you again, she vowed. Come on, there's a civil war in the sink. The light, flippant talk was good. It helped drive away the worries, doubts, and fears. The food was even better. Herr Burgermeister had a stocked larder that in another period of history 
would have made him suspected of black market affiliations. Jerry Terry bustled around the kitchen, setting plates and pouring coffee with all the animated enthusiasm of a new bride. Solo smiled in memory. That analogy would serve. The first time was always somehow the best, and had an aura of magic all its own. More coffee? Please. Dare I hope there's a wireless office in this town? Strikes me I'd better get in touch with my people. All you can do is ask Mr. Bueller when he gets back. Did you notice a railroad when we flew in last night? She shook her head. It's hard to tell from that altitude, especially at night, but there has to be one around here somewhere. He smiled grimly. That ice is not going to last forever. We have to do something and do it quick, unless Mr. Waverly has a few rabbits up his sleeve. Mr. Waverly? My section chief. I'm sure he's thought of something. What time do you have? He checked his own wristwatch. 11.15. Same here. Our watches are synchronized. Now I'm going to finish this coffee and we'll shoot over to see about Fromes and that cablegram I have to send. Failing that, the phone is my next best bet. The coffin was secure on the wooden table where they had left it. Ignoring the cackling mortician who was asking in broken English what it was all about, Solo lifted the lid and re-examined Stuart Fromes. The mixture was as before. The dead chemist looked as ghastly as previously, and his clothes still remained in their peculiarly fixed reversal of the norm. It was uncanny. Fortunately, the ice seemed to have helped. The unpleasant odor of death was somewhat subdued. Jerry? Solo said without turning. Would you ask the hair mortician to point out the direction of the cable office or someplace where we can use a phone? She caught on quickly. Within seconds, she had charmed the old man from the room. Solo bent quickly over Stuart Fromes and made a closer survey than he had the night before. The hands were hopelessly stiff. The decaying process was working fast. Fromes had worn no rings and his fingers were empty. His throat was free of pendants, lockets, or identification discs of any kind. Solo worked quickly down the length of the body to the naked feet. It was there that he took the greatest effort. One by one, he pried the locked toes apart. It was gruesome work. Fro's flesh felt flaccid and loose, as if it would come apart at the touch of a finger. Stuart Fromes had large feet, but he had managed to keep them clean and fairly uncalloused. The toenails were in excellent condition, but between his fourth and little toe on the right foot, Napoleon found the one item he was looking for. It was a repellent task, but it had to be done. It was a silver pellet looking as innocuous as a BB shot, and it fell into his palm. He held it up to the light, revolving it, his eyebrows knit in fierce concentration. Here again was an intangible. Had the pellet accidentally wedged itself between the corpse's toes at some time prior to death? Had it been placed there to be found? By whom? Fromes? The enemy? Who? There was no more time to guess. Jerry Terry was coming back, the mortician in tow, with Herr Mueller bouncing excitedly between them. The scrawny burgermeister looked unhappy about something. Napoleon Solo arched his eyebrows. 
Solo? Jerry Terry said. There are just three telephones in this thriving town. Two are not available because the people are away, and Herr Burgermeister says his phone is on the blink. As for places where one can send telegrams... She shook her head in negation. There ain't any. Oh, that's nice, he said, pitting the Burgermeister with a look. Where's the nearest place where we can contact civilization? Herr Mueller forced an apologetic smile and held up his ten thin fingers. Ten kilometers, Bart Winsberg. I will get a car or a truck to drive you. Well, that's good to know. Let me think a minute. There must be some better way. The plane? Jerry Terry asked. He shook his head. It wasn't meant to ferry coffins. We can't have stew bagging around like a load of apples. No, there has to be a better way, and I have to contact my people. Herr Mueller's eyes took on a crafty gleam. You, you bury here. Why not? We have a fine cemetery. Later you dig up, we bury in America. Nikya? Solo hesitated visibly. What cemetery? Herr Mueller's eyes widened in pride. Oh, you don't know? Orangeburg, the biggest cemetery in all this part of the country. Back in the wartime, it was left by allies. Three, maybe four hundred are dead there. Not far. We reached there in half an hour from here, close to the Black Forest. You mean a cemetery for American soldiers? A war memorial? Solo had never heard of one in this part of the world, but then he had not heard of everything. Nine, 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 Herr Mueller protested, with the mortician adding his gutturals to the chorus. Our cemetery for our people is very nice there, you see, like, uh, like, he searched for a proper word, like your Arlington Cemetery in America. Jerry Terry looked at Napoleon Solo. Her face was faintly bemused, but her eyes held refusal. Thanks for the offer, Herr Mueller, but no. I have to take my friend back to the States and right away. Now, if you'll see about that truck, we'll get him ready. Herr Mueller was pained. You will not reconsider? Sorry, no. But, but... The spluttering of Herr Mueller was suddenly drowned out in the mammoth roar of a motor directly overhead. A thundering, blasting boom of sound, which seemed to make the four walls of the mortuary rattle. A dish fell somewhere, and a tin cup clattered. Jerry Terry shouted with pleasure as Solo raced to the doorway for a look. High overhead, he could see the briskly clawing giant helicopter as it climbed quickly over the rooftops of the town. There was no mistaking the circling pattern of the flight. Solo stood and watched, smiling widely, as he made out the American insignia and the markings of the air-sea rescue. By God, he would get Stuart Frome's home after all. Mr. Waverly, he muttered feelingly, thank you very much. Chapter 8 Death for the Debonair Stuart Frome's corpse was on its way back to the States. It would be delivered to Uncle Headquarters and then placed in the laboratory where a team of experts would try to determine what had killed him. There was no more worry about that. Solo was not too surprised that Mr. Waverley had decided to come along for the helicopter ride. 
The old war horse was like that. Indeed, on many of Solo's hazardous adventures, for Uncle, Mr. Waverley had shown up in the damnedest places at the damnedest times. Looking at him now in the Burgermeister's office, Solo found it hard to believe that the old man was as stonily impatient with him as he eternally seemed. Waverley always made him feel like a pet student who had somehow failed to get a hundred on a written examination in strategy, despite all of Waverley's sound teachings. Jerry Terry had gone to see about the debonair, dependent on the outcome of Solo's interview with his chief. Obertiesendorf, of course, was agog, having seen little activity since the days when armored task forces had roared through town. Now aircraft had thundered overhead, and officials of that big, powerful country, the United States, were everywhere in evidence. Something to do with that American, the Herr Fromes, who had fallen down dead only two days ago. Well, Mr. Solo, I'm sure you have much to report. Where should I start, Mr. Waverley? Genesis, Solo. Even the Bible began there. Solo told all he had to tell, dating from the time of his encounter with Denise Framont and the infernal Mazer device. He was certain Waverley knew all about that, but he had to be thorough. He spent some time on Stuart Frome's peculiar condition of death as well as his apparel. When it came to the matter of the small silver pellet, Solo explained that all he could tell about it was on the negative side. It's not a toxic substance. It's not radioactive. According to all I've been able to discover, in the short time I've been able to devote to it, it seems to be harmless. However, there is undoubtedly more here than meets the eye, or the Geiger counter. Matter for the laboratory, I'd say. The old man, nodding as if to himself, took the pellet and tucked it carefully into the pocket of his vest. His baggy, wrinkled tweeds and thoughtful frown matched perfectly. This time, however, he seemed to have left his pipes behind in New York. You could fill me in a little, Mr. Waverley. Yes, I suppose I could, but before we return to Frome's curious case, I'd like to tell you that the Fairmont woman is definitely a thrush agent. Our file on her is most extensive. Oddly enough, Fairmont is her real name. She uses it on special occasions. It's interesting they wanted to sacrifice her when they employed the Mazer device. I must confess to no surprise at its existence. It has been employed once before against an Israeli scientist. The poor fellow was driven out of his mind. I don't think they have managed yet to lick that problem altogether. There seem to be a few bugs in the thing still. Solo nodded. Then you don't imagine Thrush has worked it into a large-scale weapon. Waverly pursed his lips. Time enough for that later, but no, I don't think so. We seem to have other secret weapons to think about at this time, Solo. And Denise Fremont? She was not at the hotel when investigators arrived. For your information, she is a ranking colonel in Thrush circles. Thanks to her beauty, her value has been considerable for Thrush. She also seems to be a brilliant young lady. Solo's smile was tinged with bitterness. I should have killed her then. I had her in the palm of my hand. Waverly shrugged. Forget her for a time. Let us now discuss what you have just placed in the palm of my hand. Solo was more than willing to forget the subject of Denise Fremont. 
what I handed you, that little silver gizmo, that could be a booby trap for booby troops. Waverly shook his head, smiling. Nothing so romantic or so simple, I'm afraid. You see, Senna, I don't know how much you've learned on this assignment as relates to Frome's, but you didn't know why we sent him here in the first place. I'm sure your friend Kiriokin gave you some clues. Solo nodded. Yeah, I remember. There was some idea of a powerful drug or some such that crippled whole populations, and the organization had somehow imagined that Obertiesendorf might be the next testing ground. Is that right? Partly. I'll take you back a bit. The obscure village of Utangaville and a Scottish whistle-stop called Sparewood. Last year, two months apart, one day, all the people in both those tiny spots turned into completely mindless creatures. Utangaville was first, then Speyerwood. The people were incapable of speech or coherent, coordinated action. It was quite as if they had been transformed into gibbering idiots. Both towns literally died. Everyone in Utangaville was dead within two days, and in Speyerwood it all happened overnight. There were 350 natives in Utangaville. Speyerwood was practically a hamlet. 97 adults, 27 children. The smaller number of people there may partially account for the shorter time period. It wasn't determined exactly what caused their deaths. All sorts of notions were formed, of course. Mysterious virus, some epidemic, plague of some kind. Yet there was nothing conclusive. The situation has not recurred, and everyone has breathed a trifle easier. But... He paused meaningfully. You expect it to happen again? Decidedly. It has the mark of thrush written all over it. For one thing, the markedly shorter amount of time it took to finish off Sparewood, it couldn't have been just because there were fewer people. I'm afraid it sounds like some organization has been experimenting with and improving its methods of killing whole populations. Thrush, then, Solo said. Waverly nodded. Yes, and judging from the state of Frome's body, they seem to be continuing their research. At any rate, Frome's uncovered something in the lab. I'm not familiar with the terms, but he claimed there was some pointed similarity between Utagaville, Sparewood, and Obertiesendorf, which made him insist the trail led here. I saw no harm in assigning a fine man, an excellent chemist, a fellow of a hunch, as it were, I'm sorry it turned out this way, but I'm certain Fromes was correct. Otherwise, he would not be dead. With his clothes turned backwards, Napoleon sighed. I hope that silver ball means something. It does and it will. Depend on it, said Ed. He drew out his cigarettes and extended them to Waverly without thinking. The old man demurred, and Solo shook his head. I am tired. I forgot about your pipes. What do you think about this rearrangement of clothing, Senna? Two things, sir. I'm positive Fromes did it as a message. He was leaving a calling card for us after death. Waverly's eyes narrowed. Ah, oh, you should jump to that conclusion. Would it have been simpler to leave a written message in code or some such? I don't think so, sir. Thrush would have seen it and would have understood it sooner or later. 
No, he was leaving something only we would comprehend. Don't you see? It adds up. If what you say about this drug or whatever it is is true, maybe there was no time for anything else. Maybe his last conscious act was to reverse his clothing while he was dying. Waverly shrugged. You may have it, my boy. I'm not sure I can disagree with you. The sunlight was streaming through Herr Mueller's window. Waverly blinked against the light. He looked at his watch. Take off in fifteen minutes. Well, Soto, here are your new instructions. I will return to New York with the body. The Air Force is most obliging. You will return to Paris with Miss Terry. You have wings, I understand. As soon as you settle down somewhere, may I suggest you avoid the Hotel International this trip? Call me, and I will let you know what we have learned about Frome's. You trust Miss Terry? Dear boy, we must. She is all that she says she is. Waverly stood. Clear now as to what is to be done. All the way down the line, sir. By the way, did you ever hear of a fairly large cemetery in this vicinity? A place called Orangeburg? It seems to be quite famous around these parts. Waverly frowned. I can't say that I have. Why do you ask? Herr Mueller, the Burgermeister, seemed pretty keen on us burying Stuart Fromm's body there. A kindness, perhaps. Never be too suspicious of everyone. Could be a bad habit to develop. You could lose your perspective. Could be. But with this case, I'm not so sure. You should think more, Soto, of why even a town of this size makes it difficult for you to keep a body preserved. Something strange there, but nothing to worry about now. No, thanks to you, Solo said. Waverly glanced at his watch again. I should say it was time I was joining the Air Force. Goodbye, Soto. I'll see you back in New York. Goodbye, Mr. Waverly. Napoleon stood where he was for a full five minutes after Waverly had gone. An idea had kindled in his head, only to flicker out again. It was annoying. He was certain that it had had something to do with Stuart Frome's having his clothes on backwards. Those clothes had to mean something. Repressing his disgust, he went out to see about the plane and Jerry Terry. They stood at the end of the metal, watching the shining helicopter climb out of sight. The roar of its passage overhead whipped the knee-high stalks at the end of the field into a leaning pattern of graceful design. Jerry Terry squinted into the sunlight of a warm, balmy afternoon. Hey, Solo, she said. Want to go for an airplane ride? I'm with you, Miss Terry. Can you fly one of these things as well as you warm it up? Try me. You could use the rest. The cabin was sleek and smooth and familiar, like an old friend. Solo locked the door on his side and settled back. His face wore a frown, however. What's the matter with you today, lover? You look blue. I'm just surprised we got out of town without any shooting going on. I usually have to blast my way out of places like ye old Obertiesendorf. He indicated the throng of curious townspeople and children crowding the edge of the meadow. She batted the ignition switch on the instrument panel. Forget it. 
My uncle is bigger than your uncle. Come again? Uncle Sam, Solo. They all know we're represented by the biggest country in the world. They're impressed. Besides, the last bit of excitement around here must have been V.E. Day. Maybe you're right. But look at Herr Mueller and the mortician. They look sorry to see us go. And it was true. The thin little Herr Burgermeister was positively crestfallen, and the mortician reflected the same attitude. But the debonair's motor was purring powerfully, the propeller churning briskly. Jerry Terry fiddled with the control board. Say goodbye to Oberthiesendorf, she suggested. Goodbye to Oberthiesendorf. Within seconds it was all behind them. The meadow, the startled faces, the huddled ugly town, the Bavarian Alps raised snowy heads on the eastern horizon. Jerry banked the debonair in a gradual, even soar of speed and finally leveled off at 4,000 feet. Solo stared straight ahead thoughtfully. The sky was a floor of unbroken blue on which the debonair skirted gracefully. You're worried, Napoleon. Why? He sighed in his aspiration. I wish I knew why. You ever get the feeling that you're leaving something behind, like unfinished business or something you had to do but didn't? You feel like that now? Very much so. I feel the last thing in the world we should be doing is saying goodbye to that ugly little town. And I can't tell you exactly why. She flung him a look and saw the worry in his eyes. Her bright expression softened. Maybe we should take a look at... He sat up at his seat. Of course. Though what good it'll do, I don't know. See if you can find that cemetery from the air. You may have to backtrack a bit, but it ought to stand out on a day as nice as this. You can't be too far from it. At his words, she nosed the ship into a climbing turn, arrowing back in the direction they'd come. The earth from the air was a wide, unending carpet, broken into terrace squares and oblongs and rectangles of all sizes and colors. It took a mere five minutes before he saw the cemetery. There! A flat expanse of earth broken only by neat, orderly rows of stone markers. I'll lower down. Hang on. The debonair dropped like an elevator. Solo hung on, the sinking sensation in his stomach suddenly exhilarating like a roller coaster ride. She cut her flying speed and arced the plane in a sweeping glide. The tiny squares of stone drew nearer with dizzying speed as the earth rushed up to meet them. She leveled off, the debonair skipping across the cemetery yards above the earth. Solo scanned the tableau. It was a beautiful place. Tended green landscape, flowers still in evidence. The whole area looked well cared for and arranged by a master landscape artist. That was all there was time for. The plane climbed, avoiding the wall of trees just ahead, and Jerry sniffed the air. Cozy. Want another look? Once more, maybe. Though I don't know what the hell I'm looking for. On the second pass, Solo tried to estimate the number of headstones, but the ground roared by and they were aloft again. Mueller was right. It is a lovely spot. Orangeburg. Nice name somehow. Yeah. 
He was still trying to think of that elusive thing that was dancing around in his brain, but it was useless. He was weary, and so was his mind. I made out about 200 headstones. Mueller said that there were that many at least. I never flew over a cemetery before. You're likely to do lots of things you never did before on this assignment. She laughed. Paris next? Non-stop, if you please. The cemetery of Orangeburg moved away from them as they rose to the west. The sun was now a blinding red ball in the sky, and neither of them saw the whining black shadow which dropped from behind its concealing corona of blaze. The dark shadow power-dived and fastened itself on their tail with deadly intent. The next sound either Napoleon or Jerry Terry heard was the thudding, frenzied pound of fifty caliber machine gun fire slamming into the wings of the Beechcraft Debonair. Chapter 9 The Wings of Thrush Jerry Terry said, Oh, and that was all, for Napoleon Solo had said it all. Oh, indeed. The wings of the debonair shivered and seemed to flap wide open under the withering hail of lead, and then the black shadow had shot past them into full view. Solo's eyes opened as he saw the plane. It was a MiG fighter, one of those Russian destroyers he had seen in action in the Korean skies. The debonair was a go-kart compared to that. He and Terry didn't have a chance. Down, go down, he barked. Now, we haven't got a prayer staring up here with him. One more pass and he'll rip our wings off like canceled stamps. Hang on to your breakfast, she sang out. There's only one way out of this. He knew what she meant. Even as he scanned the skies from the MiG, he knew what she meant to do. He had gauged her mind and her courage as well. She wasn't an army intelligence officer because she had nice coppery hair and good legs. The debonair heeled over, almost whining in protest as she worked it into a flat spin, a dangerous maneuver, but with death staring at them over the muzzle of twin fifty caliber machine guns, it was the only chance worth taking. And the MiG had banked and roared on back at them. Jerry Terry's quick-thinking slip-down caused the fusillade of new fire to spray harmlessly across the heavens. The debonair had one advantage. It could fall faster than the MiG could fly forward unless the MiG decided to follow them down. Solo bit his lip to ease the tension. He felt helpless and useless. She was doing all the work. The debonair dropped like a rock, wings dancing erratically because of the gaping wounds in the metal. The pilot of the MiG barrel-rolled beautifully, shortened a pass that would have carried him miles away and hummed on back for another try. But the altitude was giving away. Another loss of 500 feet, and the MiG couldn't dare stay close. Still, the unknown pilot had his instructions, and apparently he had cast-iron nerves as well. Even as the debonair spiraled downward swiftly toward the ground, reaching that point of no return where Jerry would have to level off, the MiG pilot was setting himself for one last-ditch all-out effort. The MiG loomed in the rearview mirror, a black phantom of unbelievable speed, shooting at them from nearly a 45-degree angle to catch them as they passed his angle of observation. Brace yourself, Solo gritted. Some more singing telegrams coming this way. 
Watch out for yourself, she snapped back. The air came alive with the pounding of machine gun fire. Solo cursed. This time it was for keeps. Pounds of lead found a home in the right wing. He watched it happen, too fascinated to turn away. A stitching, ripping pattern of trouble worked along the left wing to the point where it met the fuselage. Too late, he shouted a warning. Too late, he saw the wing crumple backwards like an arm being bent at the elbow. And then came the tearing, grating song of doom. The wing buckled and flew off like a leaf in a gale wind. The debonair flipped over on its side, throwing Solo against the girl. Flying to one wing now, the plane plummeted helplessly like a rock cast out a deep well. Jerry Terry screamed once. Solo ignored her. The earth was rushing up at them. Time was lost now. So was letting anybody else do the thinking for him. Solo seized the stick from Jerry and pulled back. The sky reeled over. The terrain spun like a dizzy kaleidoscope, scorned with the diving whistle and the whine of the debonair. But the reversal of direction on the stick, coupled with the wing loss, had a nullifying effect on the power of their dive. The plane tried to climb, losing a lot of its flying speed, but the crippled wing caused a conflict of desires aerodynamically. Solo kept his eyes riveted on the earth. The flat ground rocketed toward them. The debonair flipped on its side, groaned mightily, and swooped back downward again in a pancaking sweep of the ground. It was only then that Solo closed his body over the girl's and burrowed her head into the cushion of his shoulder. There was nothing left to do now but count to ten and pray. The debonair came down with a groaning, wounding glide of erratic flight and crumbled on its landing gear. And then came the jarring concussion of the crash. For Solo, it was an exploding, pile-driving thunder of reverberation, which seemed to lift the top of his head off. The world blazed with light and the ringing of bells, and then darkness rushed in. Napoleon Solo's last conscious thought was that somebody had gotten pretty damned angry just because he had wanted to take a close look at that beautiful cemetery of Orangeburg. In the jet bomber carrying Stuart Frome's corpse back to America, Waverly sat in the forward compartment, quietly studying his report folders. His bony forehead was beaded slightly with perspiration. His hands toyed endlessly with the silver pellet that Napoleon Solo had found, the little round enigma discovered between the fourth and fifth toes of a very important corpse. The bomber soared above the choppy green Atlantic. Staring down from his window seat, Waverly could see the limitless expanse of water. Far off on the horizon, he could make out the tall funnels of an ocean liner plowing toward France. Probably the USS United States, he thought idly. He was giving far more attention to the problem of Utangaville and Speyerwood and possibly Oberthiesendorf. Waverly sighed. He wished dearly for a lengthy chat with his laboratory technicians. The time lost in travel was irksome. The Air Force was extremely cooperative, thanks to the general, and his top priority classification. Yet there was no one on board to confide in. Thrush was no matter to discuss with pilots and bombardiers and navigators, nor with crew chiefs, no matter how well-intentioned. 
He studied the silver pellet rotating it in his strong fingers. Was this perhaps the answer to the problem? He restrained a sigh. Uncle had its limitations, for all its vast organizational power. Too often the future had to rest in the hands of a single agent, capable and highly trained to be sure, yet still only one man, a single human being in the last analysis. The range and scope of problems attacked by Uncle was enormous. There was usually a sense of something international about all the organization's activities. But just as some of the smaller nations of the world called upon the UN for assistance with certain domestic problems beyond their own abilities to handle, so did Uncle find itself called in on occasion for local situations. Anything which could affect large masses of people, or which could set up a general reaction affecting other countries or forces, was a target for Uncle. An organization's attempt, for example, to cause the accidental firing of a missile from one friendly power onto the territory of another friendly power in order to cause complications within the alliance would suffice to bring uncle agents into the field. Or the vagrant wandering of a tube of germ bacilli lost from an experimental station would have uncle tracking down that bottle before all hell broke loose on the international scene. Any attempt to manipulate a nation's currency values would demand uncle's immediate countermeasures. And so it was, and so it had to be. Waverly had devoted his life to Uncle. He sighed again, recognizing the mental process he was going through as personal justification for his own existence, and he reached for the ballpoint pen in his pocket. Time to make notes, jot some specific memoranda that would give him a starting point once they reached New York. Mr. Waverly! He looked up to see Captain Hendrick staring down at him. The man was tall, efficient, with a pine to him. One could have imagined him in buckskin and a beaver cap rather than his crisp Air Force uniform. What is it, Captain? It's the coffin, Mr. Waverly. You better have a look. Waverly rose in alarm. Out with it, man. What's wrong with the coffin? Hendrick shook his head. I wish I knew for sure but the damnedest odor is coming from it. The coffin's in the rear hole, beyond the bomb bay. Through the maze of narrow passageways, with the ribs of the ship seeming like the inside of a whale in a museum, Waverly followed the captain. The hold was a narrow, cramped space, just before the tail section, where stood a baffled-looking young sergeant, poised respectfully beside the oblong box containing Stuart Frome's body. Waverly stooped and sniffed. An awful odor of decay was present. Waverly straightened, trying to hold back a sense of loss and defeat. Sergeant, raise the lid, please. The body had been carefully packed in dry ice. Curls of cold vapor wafted up as the sergeant raised the lid. Waverly gasped. He couldn't help it. It was one of the few times in his well-ordered life he didn't quite know what to say or think. Hendricks said, Oh, my God. And the young sergeant was about to become suddenly, violently ill. With the lid up raised, the sight was there for all to see, to give the lie to the dry eyes, the time of death, and scientific mind. Stuart Frome's face and hands and feet were skeletalized. 
his flesh had vanished, leaving bone-white, dull gleam of his skeletal figure. It was unearthly. It was weird. And it was just plain impossible. It was a condition which no mere two days could have brought about. The sight was awesome and terrifying. The corpse's teeth were bared, the hollow eyes staring sightlessly up from the men surrounding the coffin. "'Close the lid, will you, Sergeant?' Waverley said calmly. "'There's nothing more we can do now.' "'Shakespeare,' Waverley reminded Ilya Nikovich Karyakin in Uncle Headquarters. "'I kept being hoisted on Hamlet's line. Act two, wasn't it?' "'Hamlet?' Karyakin looked puzzled. "'Yes, Hamlet, man. What was the line about Yorick? How long will a man's body lie in the ground ere it rot? Kiriakin nodded. Yes, I see what you mean. Only rotting isn't the thing now, is it? We have a skeleton to contend with. Waverly grunted, his smile blank. Well, that's your department. What's the answer? The Russian pursed his lips thoughtfully and considered his reply for a few well-chosen seconds before answering. I can't tell you exactly how rapidly decomposition works. That could only be determined by where the body was buried, under what conditions, just how long the internment continued. But I can tell you one thing. It certainly is a far greater period of time than three days. More like two months. Exactly. And that is the condition of Frome's body on Sunday, when he only died on Friday of the same week. We are working on it, sir. We need a bit more time. And so does Pellet? What of that? Kiriakin frowned. He's not just a pellet we've found. It's actually a capsule. Inside is a chemical substance which we're analyzing now. Every available researcher in Section 2 is on it. We'll have a report in a few hours. Well, hmm. Waverly selected another briar from his desk drawer. And so now, no word yet from Paris? Nothing of the teletype. No cablegrams, no transatlantic phone calls, which is not like him. <sighs> no, it isn't. Waverly consulted his watch. It had been a mere three hours since the jet bomber had set down on the LaGuardia runway. Time and more than time. Uncle should have heard from Solo hours ago. He would have reached Paris long before Hendricks landed in New York. After all, they had had an entire ocean to contend with. Perhaps the girl. No. No, that couldn't be. She had checked out thoroughly within security. Damnation. Things were getting a bit thick here. Sir? Yes, Kuryakin. When we finish analyzing the chemical in the pellet, I'd like to go to Paris. Oh, why, may I ask? Solo, he might need a hand. He has one. Two, in fact. Two very pretty ones. Ilya Nikovich Kuryakin grinned and made him seem more harmless than ever, his straw hair untidily youthful. Three agents are better than two. You are needed here, Kiriakin, but we shall see. Time enough to decide when we clear up these lab matters. It is peculiar about Fromm's clothing, sir, 
It must mean something. Waverly smiled. You too, eh? Perhaps you and Zoro are correct. It is odd to find a body dressed that way. Do you have any ideas, sir? A few. None that would interest you right now. If you'll be good enough to return to your office, I shall make some inquiries about Adio Solo. Yes, of course. Goodbye, sir. When Kiriakit had gone, Waverly put a few well-oiled wheels of communication into motion. Within twenty minutes, he would know if Napoleon Solo had returned to Paris. It was damned worrisome that the young idiot hadn't gotten through to headquarters yet. The frightened people of Obertiesendorf had another mystery on their hands. The afternoon sky had been full of angry, violent buzzing of two airplanes in a battle of some kind. They had seen the fall of the lighter plane and the frenzied attack of the black one. Then the awful crash that made the ground shudder. The most ambitious and adventurous of the townspeople, a blacksmith named Gothel, set out in his battered truck for the scene of the crash. He was certain the plane had fallen somewhere in the vicinity of Orangeburg Cemetery. When he returned two hours later, he had a grim report to make. Yes, it was the plane that the American had come in, and yes, the plane was a mass of twisted wreckage. But no, he had not found the bodies of either of the Americans. It was as if the earth had just swallowed them up.